Welcome to The Compass, the weekly podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. My name is Dan Carson, and I'm the pastor of Family Ministries here at Calvary. I'd love to take this opportunity to invite you to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We meet at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Now, if you have any questions about the church or about our ministry, check us out at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Now, in today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing a series entitled Matters of the Heart with part two of a message entitled Windows of the Heart. In part one, Pastor Kirk talked about the word, our walk, our worship, and our witness. On today's episode, Pastor Kirk is sharing from Matthew 6 and talking about our wealth. Let's listen together. February is known as the month of love. I hope none of you men messed up this past week on Valentine's Day and forgot to acknowledge that with your very special person. But we're in a series of messages called Matters of the Heart. We're dealing with the heart, that seems appropriate uh, for the month of love. And we are going to be looking today at the topic um, of windows of the heart. This is actually part two of what we started last week. Windows of the heart. Now, if you remember, uh, we mentioned that the Bible refers to the heart almost 1,000 times in the Old and New Testament together. And when we talk about the heart, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about that muscle that keeps us alive, that pumps blood. Uh, When the Bible refers to the term heart and uses the word heart, it is referring to that spiritual part of us where our emotions and our desires dwell. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your emotions, with all of your desires, with with everything that there is in you. Love the Lord your God. That is how the Bible uses the word. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about the fact that in Jeremiah 17, the Bible warns us that the heart is desperately wicked. It is not easily known. But also in the book of Ezekiel, we are reminded that when a person puts their faith and trust in Christ, that he takes that old stony heart that cannot be known out, and he gives us a heart of flesh that is sensitive to the Spirit and can know and understand spiritual truth. And the way that uh, I've sought to try to illustrate that for you is to say this, picking up from uh, an old gospel song that goes back over 50 years ago uh, that asked the question, what about your heart? What if it had a window on each side so that you could look in and see for yourself the condition of your heart? Well, I want to tell you that lost people, those who still have old stony hearts, They can't do that 
unless God opens their mind and their understanding to be able to comprehend the condition of their heart, the stoniness, the lostness, the blackness, the evil that all of us were born with when we came into this world, that heart that was rebellious towards God. But as God's people, again, with that heart of flesh that that can know spiritual truth and understand it, There are some windows, there are some ways we can look in and see what's going on inside of us and to see what the condition of our heart is in. Or as the song puts it, to see what condition my condition is in. All right? We talked about four of those last week. I'll just mention them for you here. That the Word of God, specifically how we receive the Word of God, uh, tells us about our hearts. If we are resentful towards a message from God's Word, if we are resistant towards it, we are like that stony ground Jesus talked about. Remember, He talked about four different kinds of soils that are illustrations of the different kinds of our hearts. Or if we don't have time for the Word of God, if the cares of the world and the the other things of life have crowded out the Word of God so that we don't hear it and we don't respond to it, then um, our, our heart is in trouble. Our heart needs to be that good soil where when the seed of the Word drops in, it begins to produce a harvest. We said also that our walk tells us a lot about the condition of our heart. Are we walking in obedience to the Word of God? Has the Word of God changed the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we react and respond to others, the behaviors of our lives? Has it caused us to turn away from certain things that do not honor God and in in response turn to the good things of God? How about our walk? How about, number three, our worship? Our worship. Uh, Am I living a worshipful life? Am I faithful to God's people? Am I faithful to God's church? For you see, I cannot be faithful to God without being faithfully committed to a local body of Christ. That's just the truth of God's Word. And then we mentioned our witness. Do I share Christ's gospel of grace with others? So those four things, the Word, our walk, our worship, our witness, all those are like a window that helps us to look in to our heart and evaluate. And today we add another window into the condition of our hearts. This is the window of our wealth. Our money, our position, our possessions. Now some of you are thinking right now, you look at that word wealth and you think, I ain't got none of that, so this sermon isn't for me. Right? Well, I want you to know we are all very wealthy people, very blessed of God, even in those physical, tangible ways. Now, I want you to know I run a great risk even talking about this to you. Fifty years ago, as a, uh, a young preacher in Bible college, we were warned, don't preach about money because immediately people will consider that meddling into their business. Well, I'm going to meddle into your business today because the Bible talks about money and possessions 
a great deal. I'll tell you just how much in a moment. But let's just pause and let's hear the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6. We cannot read all of this chapter, so I want to read some selected verses. Beginning with verse 19. Listen, this is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now listen, here's the key verse for everything we're going to say today. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, is where your heart will also be. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It's a window into your heart. What you treasure, what you value, how you use what God has allowed you to have is a window into the condition of your walk with God. By the way, that statement in verse 21 is a reciprocal statement. It's reciprocal. It goes both ways. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You also can say, for where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. That's the action part of it. What your heart is fixed on is what you're going to invest your possessions, your money, your time, your energy into. Now go down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word there maybe in your Bibles reads mammon. It is not only money, it is earthly possessions. You cannot serve money and stuff. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 33, a summary statement. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This is the word of the Lord. So how do we handle our wealth, our money, and possessions? It's one of the most tangible and measurable expressions of the condition of our hearts. I cannot measure because I don't know all about your walk with God. I cannot look into your heart and measure everything about your worship of the Lord or your witness on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I don't walk around with you all the time. I can't look into your heart and see the condition of your heart as soil, whether you receive the word. You're all very kind to put up with what I have to say, and you smile, and some of you even go so far as to tell me what a good message it is from time to time as you leave, but I don't know really what your heart is doing with that. But show me your checkbook. Show me your bank statement. And it is the most tangible, the most real way to measure the condition of a person's heart. It cannot be avoided. 
The Bible makes it very clear in the way that it talks about this, this topic. Now, someone might ask, is God really interested in how we handle our money? Well, the answer is absolutely. They might ask, what does our money have to do with our walk with God? And the answer to that is everything. Absolutely and everything. Now, let me give you some for instances, and we'll get to the outline in just a minute. If you're worrying about that, it's only two points. We're going to go to the Old Testament and look at about three or four verses. We're going to go to the New Testament, and we'll finish there. So we'll start in the Gospels, Old Testament, New Testament. If you want to go ahead and turn to the Old Testament passage, it is in the book of Malachi. You might want to go ahead and turn there. I'm not sure what page it is in your Bibles, but I want you to know it is the last book, as you know, of the Old Testament, so it should be pretty easy to find. We'll be in chapter 3. Concerning money in the Bible... Jesus taught 38 parables during the course of his earthly ministry. They're recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. And out of 38 parables, almost half, 16 of them, deal with money and possessions and how we view it and how we handle it. So Jesus preached on it an awful lot. In the Gospels, one out of every ten verses, even in all of the verses that talk about where Jesus went and what he did and how he healed people, and we have the Sermon on the Mount and all these other things, understand one out of ten verses deals with money and possessions. The Bible Old Testament and New Testament, devotes about 500 verses to the topic of prayer. Would you uh, agree with me that prayer is very important? It also speaks almost 500 verses about faith. Would you not agree that faith is a necessary and important topic in the Bible? 500 verses to prayer, 500 verses to faith, but over 2,000 verses to wise stewardship of money and possessions. God is saying to us, this says a lot about your spiritual condition. In fact, Jesus said more about the stewardship of money and possessions than he did about heaven and hell put together. Okay? It was that important. When we study what the Bible has to say about money and possessions... We have to think about it on two levels. I hope you'll lock this away and make this a, uh, something that you have a frame, framework to understand the topic. On two levels, the Bible speaks about money and possessions. On the uh, level of obedience, and then on the level of generosity. Obedience and generosity. In fact, those two words are telling us two kinds of stewardship. Two ways that we approach money and use it. So those will be our topics. In in regards to obedience, we have what the Bible calls the tithe. We read about it a lot in the Old Testament. We read about it a little in the New Testament. Now, turn to Malachi chapter 3 if you're not already there because you need to lay your eyes on these verses yourself. Malachi chapter 3. But let me define what we mean when we say tithe, first of all. What is the tithe? Well, mathematically, it is a tenth. 
The word tithe means a 10%, a tenth portion of something. So when we talk about tithes in regards to our money and possessions, we're talking about 10% of our money and our possessions. Now, secondly, scripturally, it is a law. It is a law. There's great details in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy about tithing and how we were to give, how the Israelites were to give 10%. But understand, it's not limited to the law. Because back in the book of Genesis, hundreds of years before the law was ever given, we find the Bible talking about the tithe when it talks about Abraham paying tithes, 10% to the, uh, the priest, uh, the high priest Melchizedek. And that was a man we don't know anything really about other than the fact that uh, he was honored and he was respected. He is a Christ-like figure in the Old Testament. So Abraham is giving a tithe before the tithe was ever written into the law of God. Mathematically, it is a tenth. Scripturally, it is a law. Morally, it's viewed as a debt. We'll read about that in just a moment. It is a debt. I believe it's a debt I owe. It is a debt I owe. Understand I believe it is a debt you owe, too, if you're a child of God. Morally, it is a debt. Economically, it is an investment. It is an investment. Though it is a debt and you give it to God, understand, it is described as laying up treasures in heaven. You are putting into a heavenly bank that you will be blessed and rewarded for. So even though it is something you give away to God to honor him and to obey him, at the same time, you will reap the benefits of it in glory. And then fifth, spiritually, it is a blessing. It is a blessing. And again, Malachi will tell us about this. Let me just summarize that by saying this. Tithing is God's key to financial blessings. Do you want God's financial blessings? Do you want God to, to put his hand of blessing on you in, in tangible way in, in regard to finances, in regards to uh, money and possessions? Tithing is the key. Tithing is the key. No one has any right to expect God's hand of blessing on their finances, on their uh, financial life, if we are not, first of all, honoring God with 10% of whatever we have. Okay, with all that in mind, let's read some verses from Malachi now. And I'm going to just give this to you very quickly because I really want to get over to our uh, New Testament passage where we'll wind things up and we'll see uh, not just the tithe, but we'll see how um, God blesses generosity. Okay, generosity. Three things in Malachi chapter 3, beginning with verse 8 and 9. The question that is asked. This is God speaking to his people. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. That's what he tells his people. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. That's a pretty serious charge. 
But yet God is God. He has the right to make the charge, and he is never wrong in anything that he says. So he says to his people, his people that have been called out and redeemed by him, the Old Testament expression of what you and I in the church are today. He said, you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. Now notice the command he gives them in verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. The way to remedy this problem is to obey me, is to obey the scripture. The way to remedy this is for you to be responsible in what I have given to you and what I've blessed you with. With your income, with your possessions, with your money, with your stuff. Bring the full tithe into the Lord's house, into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Now notice the compensation. This is the fun part, beginning with the last part of verse 10. And he says this, And thereby, when you do that, you put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, did you know that's the only place in the Bible where God challenges you and me to put him to the test? Test me in this. Try me. Prove me. Some of you remember the old hymn we used to sing. Test me, try me, prove me, saith the Lord of hosts. If I were to open up the windows of heaven and pour out on you a blessing that you cannot even contain. That's where it comes from right here. Test me, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of of hosts. Notice what he says he will do if you will obey him in this matter of the tithe. He said, I will pour out a blessing on you. Anybody here need a blessing? Is there anybody here that's open to God doing that for you? Anybody here want God to open up the windows of heaven and pour out on you his goodness and his blessings he said, I will pour out a blessing on you. But then he says, I will rebuke the devourer for you. In the agrarian culture of the Old Testament where almost everyone uh, had to raise crops, even the shepherds had to raise crops uh, and food for their flocks, uh, there evidently probably was some specific pest known at that time that was referred to as the devourer the one that eats up my harvest. But understand, who is the devourer in our day and time today? I'll tell you who it is. It's the mechanic. It's the repairman. It's your doctors in some cases. All these things that eat up our bank account. The Lord says, I will rebuke the devourer on your behalf. Am I saying that you'd never be sick? You'll never have, you know, your refrigerator will never just quit on you. Your car 
uh, just stop on you on the highway. No, those things are still going to happen. But God, if we are faithful in our finances, if we are loyal and obedient to give God what is His, God is going to bless us even in those times that they are not severe hardships on us. Some of you are paying your tithe to other places that if you were obedient to God, you would not have to be given the money to those places. Not in every case, not in every case, not in all cases, but you see loyalty and obedience to God will lead you to be obedient and also how you use the other 90% He allows you to keep. You see, all of it belongs to God, right? All of it does. And if I give to God what it is, it's not a way of getting God off my back. It's a way of honoring Him and obeying Him for who He is. And it means at the same time, I'm going to want to live in such a way that I don't go into deep debt. That I don't have to pay the credit card companies and interest. That I don't have to do all these other things. I will live differently And in living differently, God will rebuke the devourer and he will bless you in those very specific areas. And he said, not only that, I'll make you a blessing to others. You will be a delightful land. Don't you want to be a blessing to others? I want to tell you one of the hardest things to deal with in the Christian's life is to feel led of the Lord to help somebody, truly moved by the Spirit, to help somebody that has a deep need and then not to have the ability to respond to it because I have not been obedient about my finances. God will make you a blessing to others. I want to step aside from all of that and say something personally. In the meantime, uh, there's two things. Uh, There's an insert in your worship guide that gives you some statistics about what is happening in the tithe in our country and in our churches today. Don't read that now, but I hope you will later. Turn over in your Bibles uh, to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's page number 967 in the Pew Bibles, and we'll be there in just a moment. But I want to say this. There was a time in our lives, Tony and me together, as in our family in our home, that we were not faithful to tithe. We knew we were supposed to. But, um, you know, you're in those ministry situations. Uh, The first church we ever pastored, we moved our family from Conway, Arkansas, to an Indian reservation in Washington State where there were 11 people who said, we will be able to pay you $15 a week. And we said, we'll be right there. We didn't have any money. We did different things, worked in the public schools. It was a, it was a orchard, an orchard agriculture area. Uh, I drove a tractor for a couple of years for a rancher, fruit rancher, and we picked fruit. We did all kinds of things to live some of the best years of our lives, but we had no money. And so we determined from that, 
well, the tithe is something then that we are not really responsible for because we are so poor. But that's the brilliance about the tithe. It's not a certain level of money. It's 10% of whatever you have, whether you have $5 or whether you have $5,000. It's brilliant. It's God's will and way. It's his key to financial blessings. So it is never more for one person than it is for somebody else. And in fact, you find the poorest person ever mentioned in the Bible was a widow Jesus observed one day in the temple treasury who came and you had all these wealthy Pharisees and religious leaders sounding their trumpets, having everybody look, say, look, we're here to give our money, here it is, and start dropping all these gold pieces and silver pieces into the treasury. And here came this little poor woman living below the poverty level. All she had to her name were two mites, less than one penny. And she came, and she dropped that in. And what did Jesus say? Do you remember? She has given more than all the rest. Why? Because they gave out of their abundance. They could afford to tithe. But she couldn't afford to. She gave out of her need. And that's what God observed. And that's what God blessed. And that's what God was honored with. Now, some people say, okay, since the tithe... Well, let me finish my story. There came a time. There came a time. And we realized over a period of time that, you know, we, we're being unfaithful. We're being disobedient. Disobedient. And so... We started obeying God in the tithe. And guess what? When you put it on paper, we could not afford it. The numbers did not add up. But the Lord said, test me. Try me. Put me to the, to the test and prove me. And see if I'll not take care of you. And you know what? God did take care of us. And, and a part of what I discovered along the way was in Luke chapter 16, where, and this is what convicted me as a pastor, the Lord said, if you are not faithful in these things, these earthly things, the handling of your money, if you're not faithful in this, it's very tangible, I mean, it's, it's something you feel, you can look at. If you're not faithful in this, in giving to God and obeying Him in these matters, how can you expect Him to entrust you with the true riches. And that piqued my curiosity. What are the true riches, according to God? The true riches are the things that are not very tangible. They're not very measurable. They're spiritual. It's insight into the Word of God. It's, it's understanding God's work in my life and my family's life. The true riches are spiritual blessings. And if I'm not faithful in what is in my wallet in this, why should God, and God says, why should I entrust you with this? And I realize I'm a pastor. I need true riches. I need understanding and spiritual blessings here if I'm to do what God has called me to do. And the key to getting it here is to be faithful 
in it here. No pastor should ever be a non-tither at least. No spiritual leader. No one teaching Sunday school should be unfaithful and disobedient in the matter of their finances. Why? Because God will withhold spiritual insight from you. You want pastors, elders, Sunday school teachers, spiritual leaders, fathers in the family. You want these people to be faithful to God with finances so that God will be faithful and generous to them in spiritual truth so that they can lead. Okay, that's tithing. That is obedience. Now let's go to number two. Let's go to generosity. We're going to read about this and basically just let the Scripture speak for itself in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and some verses in chapter 9. We call this not the tithe. We call this the free will offering. The free will offering. Next Sunday, you're going to have an opportunity to give a free will offering. For what? For the work of missions. Seeing the gospel spread around the world. Understand, the free will offering is above and beyond the tithe. At least it's supposed to be. The free will offering is mentioned many times in the Old Testament. And by the way, let me just say this to you. In this matter of free will, I don't want to you know, scratch anybody's scabs or anything, make them mad here, anything like that. But understand this. The only times in the Bible that the word free and the word will are put together is in regards to money. Nowhere else does the Bible say we have a free will. It never uses those words in conjunction with each other. But concerning this offering, this offering above and beyond the tithe, this offering that expresses generosity, not just obedience, but generosity, having a generous spirit, we give free will offerings. Now, there was a need in Paul's day of the church in Jerusalem. You remember all the missionary activity? Paul went out as missionary. Some of the apostles went out. Persecution came on the church about A.D. 70. Pretty bad persecution. Actually, before that, we find it. Uh, But we find a lot of things happening. Uh, But hard times falls on the original mother church. They are poor. They are hurting. They are being persecuted not only by Rome, but also by the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. It's hard. And so Paul begins to make this known. He speaks about it in the book of Acts. He speaks about it in uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians. He speaks about it one or two other places. He says to these churches out here around the Mediterranean where he is preaching and, and starting churches, he's saying, I want to encourage you to give an offering to go back to Jerusalem to help these folks at Jerusalem. Okay? Now, he mentioned that to the Corinthians. About a year passes by, uh, and then he brings it up to them again, and uh, it's time to uh, collect that offering. And uh, this Corinth church uh, is in what was known as Greece, but the northern part of Greece is known as Macedonia in those times. Today, it's all Greece. But in those times, it was Macedonia. And understand, when Rome took over, 
They persecuted the Macedonians. They took everything they had in that region. Why? Because Alexander the Great had come from there. He was a Macedonian. And they came along and they took from those people and left them basically very rural, very powerless, uh, very poor. Now down to the south in very cosmopolitan Corinth, it was very urban and people had a good deal of money and possessions. So he's writing to the Corinthians, but he is challenging them with what was given by the poor Macedonians. Now, does all that make sense? When he talks about they in Macedonia, he's talking about people that didn't have much. And he is, um, uh, he's challenging them. So in chapter 8, look at verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. Look at it on your page. You need to re- read and see these words for yourself. I'm going to read them, make some comments along the way, and we'll finish. We want you to know, brother, uh, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, did you hear what he said in those two verses? It almost just sounds almost like it's contradicting itself. The people of Macedonia, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance, their generosity of joy, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. These people had every reason not to give an offering to somebody living hundreds of miles away that they would never meet, let alone even be faithful to pay a tithe to the Lord or to obey Him at all. But evidently they must have been faithful tithers. Why? Because God blessed them that they could give out of a wealth of generosity. They tested God, they proved God, and God took care of them and made them a blessing to others, just like he said he would do in Malachi 3. Notice that the grace of God is God's gift to his church. Generous giving is the response of God's people to God. Did you get that? The grace of God is His gift to us, Calvary Church. The right response to God's grace is generous giving to others. Verse 3. For they gave according to their means. Okay, they gave according to their means. But listen to this. As I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor. The word is grace. They considered the opportunity to give was a grace that God had given them, that God's grace includes the opportunity to share with others. Earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this... Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. 
These people, they gave according to their means. But they gave beyond their means. They gave so much as individuals and families. When they put it on paper, it didn't add up. But God had stirred their hearts. God had moved their hearts. They begged earnestly. Even when Paul and others said, no, listen, we will collect the money somewhere else. People that have more that that can afford to do this, they begged earnestly. Don't leave us out of God's blessing that we can do this. We want to be a part. And they didn't just give money. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, no one will ever be a generous giver until they first of all surrender their hearts and lives to the Lordship of Christ. And when a person gives themselves to the Lord, guess what? The pocketbook comes with it. You will never be a generous giver of your finances until you first give yourself to the Lordship of Christ. Verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel, Corinthians, in everything, you excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Twice that phrase is used, calling this generous free will offering an act of grace. You are the recipients of grace. You also are the dispensers of grace to other people. Generous giving is an act of grace. Grace received results in generosity expressed. Grace received results in generosity expressed. A lack of generosity shows a lack of understanding and appreciation of God's grace. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, by the earnestness of the Macedonians, that your love is also genuine. Now listen to this, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became Poor, so that you, by his poverty, might be made rich. That is the gospel in a statement. That's the gospel in one verse, in one sentence. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's speaking of all of us as saved people. We are rich because of Jesus and his sacrifice. His sacrifice on our behalf, one man has called this, this is the poverty that made us rich. The most famous verse in all the Bible, the one that all of us know better than all the rest, is what? For God so loved, say it with me, for God so loved the world, That he gave, stop right there. You know, he gave his only begotten son. God's love is expressed in God's giving. The same is true for us. So that that is explaining what's going on. That is an encouragement to the Corinthians to give generously. Now turn the page to chapter 9 
And this will be the final thing that we look at. This is how he describes the cheerful, not grudging, the cheerful giver. Look down to verse 6. I love this. He makes it clear. The point is this. Now these two chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, form a section of 2 Corinthians all to itself. It's dealing with this free will offering. It's dealing with generosity and what generosity looks like when it's alive in a person's heart who's been saved by the grace of God. It presumes the obedience of the tithe is already there because you don't give a free will offering, you don't give a generous offering until first of all you've been obedient into what God requires. So above that, we move into this generosity level. And this is what he said in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The point is this. And he's basically saying what Jesus said in Luke 6.38, where Jesus said, Give, and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men pour into you. For with whatever, now listen, here's the principle. With whatever measure you use, it will be measured to you again. So if you are a tipper, when it comes to your financial giving to Christ, then God will just be a tipper back to you. Now, understand, He'll always give us more than we deserve, but what else does He mean? With the same measure that you measure out, it will come back to you. This is the point. That's what Paul said. You sow sparingly, you sow just a little, you'll reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. That's why I said it's a heart matter. It's a window to the heart. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency, that means contentment. Having all contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You know there's one thing interesting about the free will offering. You were free not to give it. It was okay. You're free not to give it. Now the tithe was an obligation, an act of obedience. But the free will offering, you don't, have, you don't have to give next week to missions if you don't want to. You're not less of a person. God's not going to be mad at you if you don't. It's a free will offering. Only what your heart leads you to do, you should do. But understand with whatever measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. If you want to be a generous, cheerful giver, we want all of us, we want to grow in this, this grace, this act of grace of giving. Generous giving 
is an expression of the condition of one's heart. Generosity comes from a cheerful, a hilarious heart. That's what cheerful means, by, by the way, there. It is where we get our word hilarious. God loves a hilarious, a cheerful giver. That kind of cheerful comes from contentment. Verse 13, we end up here. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you and in a word of doxology, Paul cannot contain himself as he thinks about this and thinks about God working through people to take care of others. He said, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift to us. Well, of course, he's talking about Jesus. But the opportunity to be a part of God's work is also a gift of grace to us. Your generosity will result in glory to God and in advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, that statement, his inexpressible gift, it means unutterable. God has blessed you beyond words. It means indescribable. indescribable. That's hard for me to say. Um, it's not used anywhere else in the Bible, only here. His unutterable, indescribable gift to us. Are we obedient tithers? Have we moved beyond that into being generous givers? It's all a matter of the heart. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that it has not been offensive to anybody here. Father, we, we want to know that we only talk about these things because we want the full blessing of God upon our lives, our families, and our church. And I pray that we, Calvary, the Calvary family, will be known for our generosity and our obedience in the matter of this very important area of our life. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.